You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. Did they put him away? Well, the lawyers got fat and the judge got famous, but somebody forgot to sign the search warrant in the right place and Krueger was free just like that. What did you do, Mother? A bunch of us parents tracked him down after they let him out. We found him in an old abandoned boiler room where he used to take his kids. Took gasoline. Then lit the whole thing up and watched it burn. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because Mommy killed him. I even took his knives. Welcome to another installment of The Fear of God. We are in the midst of hashtag I love the 80s, and we are having a fantastic time. I am one of your hosts, Reed Lackey, looking with you every single week at the intersection between faith and the horror genre. And typically with me is one Mr. Nathan Rouse, but he kept saying that he was having some trouble sleeping. He hasn't been sleeping very well. Um, He kept sort of like diner hopping trying to get some coffee so that he could stay awake and he was trying all sorts of elaborate things like burning his hands with cigarette lighters and like trying all kinds of weird freaky stuff to try to stay awake and i don't i don't really know why but but it was it was very very strange he said that there was this strange person after him somebody with this like like weird glowing orange hair kept coming after him saying he, he wanted to make things great again and i'm just like i i don't know it was it was pretty it was pretty torturous it was pretty tormenting so i'm not right quite sure but what but while he's there while he's trying to figure out his sleep patterns and sleep things um we are uh, we just want to encourage you that um if you listen to us through itunes then please we would love for you to leave us a rating leave us a review um we very much appreciate that uh either one is fine but a review would certainly be very very much appreciated um and subscribe to us if that is uh, your cup of tea which we really really hope we are and oh nathan nathan don't oh, fuck her up i see i see I see you finally got don't some, lock, some don't, don't, there. Don't, don't, I, don't lock her up. How you doing? <laughs> what, what, what's going on, buddy? Oh, 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 Reed, I just had the worst nightmare. It was like, 
Man, it was like presidential election 2016, and I, I can't even begin to tell you. You were back how there. How weird huh? it was! Oh like, man, that's scary. It was that's like super scary. Biff from the Back to the Future series became president. Uh, I don't, oh, I don't yeah. know. It's it's super it's super scary. Woo! I hate to tell you, but unfortunately, yeah. it wasn't entirely a dream. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just what what what? We're such idiots. Um, okay, mm, wow. So, uh, Hey, buddy! So, but yeah, hey, my friend. It's good to see you as always. We are back I'm awake in the thick of the eighties. And yeah, for now, I'm woke. Uh, Indeed. Although my my triple espresso pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks at five o'clock, I think, has now been replaced by the Fireball whiskey. And um, <laughs> you know, the the pendulum swings wildly. Yes, in my insides. Yes, indeed. I understand. Know? I understand. So for. Forgive me if. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to take it from here and we'll just let him catch some Z's. So uh, what we want to do this week is we want to tell you about another film from your top 10. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. Hey, you know, uh, what's funny. You know, what's funny is uh, is um, so uh, spoiler alert. We're talking about a nightmare on Elm Street today in the middle of hashtag. I love the 80s. I love the 80s. <laughs> um, and, you know. This is the movie that I thought, yep, Freddie would get me. Like <laughs> I am, I, I, by the time this airs, I will have turned 39 Reed and I don't, oh I don't like feel like an old person. I don't feel that way, but my body just shuts off at certain times. <laughs> and like, I would not, I love how in this movie, Nancy has this bottle of medicine. That's just like, don't fall asleep medicine. Like that's basically yes. the brand name. It's like, yes. no, like I, I, it would not work on me. I would just like conk out. Freddie would totally get me, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are not yet dream warriors. Instead, what we're, what are we about to do? Reed? We are going to count down. Ladies and gentlemen, we have reached in the hashtag. I love the eighties listener voted countdown of your favorite horror films of the eighties. We have reached the top 20. We are going to count down for you right now. Number 20, through 11 there's some exciting fun films and that you voted in your top 20 i'm very very excited so uh nathan you want to dive right in let's just let's just go for it oh uh, let's do it okay so i'm gonna go i'm gonna start i'm gonna lead us off with number 20 number 20 is written by uh john carpenter and deborah hill and directed by rick rosenthal it is the sequel to his seminal 1978 masterpiece of slasher films, Halloween 2 is number 20 in your listener-voted top films of the 1980s, top horror films of the 1980s. I so, got to uh, watch Halloween 2 with you in you October sure 2017. That was fun. It was and fun. You liked it. We as ate I a remember. lot of candy. I did like it. It was good. Yeah, was we did eat a lot of candy. Him chasing Laurie Strode through the hospital. Yes, that is exactly what it is. Yeah. Yep, that's the one. That's yep. the one. Halloween 2. Not to be confused with Halloween H2O, Water. That's true. No, no, no. That Two was, different movies. That was many years later. But yeah, I, I do like it. So number, number, uh, read number 19 on yes. this walk down memory lane, that of the top 50 mo horror movies of the 1980s, is Ground Zero for the nicest 
model you'll ever see. Don't say his name three times. It is Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> oh, Woo! my gosh. All right. Yes, Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. Yeah, Beetlejuice. Great movie. Go back and listen to Circa, uh, a very scary Burton Christmas about yes. Christmas 17. Yeah, yeah, last year. Christmas 17. Last yep, year. Sure was. Sure was. Yes, we, we have a lot of affection for Beetlejuice. So, yeah, go check that out. Um, speaking of films we have a lot of affection for, number... 18 is the John Carpenter directed from 1980, The Fog. Coming in the fog. at number yeah. 18. That's right. The Fear of God. No, I'm sorry. It is just The Fog. Uh, starring Adrian Barbeau and Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Atkins and uh, featuring Hal Holbrook and John Carpenter, who wants to know how to get paid. Um, yes, we. you can go back and listen to our episode on that uh, from the first 10 episodes of The Fear of God. Um, but yes, you voted it in as one of your very favorite horror films of the 1980s. Number 18, John Carpenter's The Fog. Uh, um, thank you for that read. Number 17 on our list this week is that um, little offbeat, little, you know, kind of scary prequel to Peter Pan by Joel Schumacher called The Lost Boys. Um, <laughs> it really you know, it's, takes a it's, turn. It does. It does. I mean, who knew? That's really kind of how Captain Hook lost his hand. Not me. You know. <laughs> the Lost Boys directed by Joel Schumacher is quite, quite a fun film. I enjoy mm. it. Uh, I enjoy it quite a bit. Um, moving, moving right along to number 16 is a, oh, it's a favorite film of mine. To be honest, I was kind of hoping this one would make the top 10 so that we could have an immediate excuse to cover it. But alas, that was not to be the case. Um, still, everybody should seek this movie out and watch it because it's amazing and I love it. 1985's Fright Night, directed by Tom Holland. It is, oh, you're so cool, Brewster. That's not going to mean anything to you if you haven't seen it, but it is so, so good. It is featuring prominently Chris Sarandon and Roddy McDowell, um, but it is just a wonderful neighborhood vampire movie uh, with some laughs and some scares, and it's wonderful, and I love it. Uh, everybody should see Fright Night. The way you just described it made it sound like it was just like vampires having cookouts. You know, it's like the neighborhood <laughs> vampire movie. It's like just a vampire in an apron that kiss the cook on the neck. You know? Yes, basically. Um, I thought you hadn't seen it. Who knew Tom Holland had such a Luke, you know, such a prolific directing career pre I know. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't know. And he ages so well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, he does. Exactly. He does. He looks great. <laughs> um, and, and those are really his stunts. Um, he's really doing those stunts. Um, number 15, <laughs> On our top 50, <laughs> you're going to kick out of this. I tried to spell it the way it's spelled as the actual, <laughs> you know, the actual title. So Pet Cemetery by Mary Lambert. Well, I tried to spell Pet Cemetery the way it's spelled on the book. And if you, I think maybe even on the very first episode of the Fear of God, I talk about my story with Pet Cemetery, how yes. I read it in like sixth grade. It turned me off from Stephen King for about 15 years, uh, but now here we are. Um, but my autocorrect respelled it Pet Seminary, which is where your dog goes <laughs> to get his Masters of Divinity. Um, so, yes. <laughs> oh, that's so perfect. That, that, feels so like, that feels like something from like the... Um, you know, what's the, what's the not remember the Titans, but, you know, the face and the face in the giants. Yes. You know, so, you know some verb to some large people name like facing the giants. Remember the Titans. Remember the giants. Whatever. Um, that feels like <laughs> something they would make like pet seminary. You know, like it's just like all dogs. It's like it's sort of like in the spirit of all dogs go to heaven. 
It's just where <laughs> all the animals go to be able to preach the gospel oh to all the gosh. ends of the earth. <laughs> oh my gosh. Preach the gospel. And if you have to use barks, you know, that like, is pretty hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> use barks. <laughs> you ain't right. <laughs> you ain't right. Carry oh on, Reed, please. Okay, so number 14. Uh, you're going to dispute whether or not this is a horror film, but I think that's only because you haven't seen it recently, if you've seen it at all. Um, but number 14. Wow. Is I don't know the, how. That's a very charged preface. It is. Well, you've done it before. <laughs> you'll, you'll see. You'll see. So okay. number 14. Tell me. Is directed by James Cameron. It is the original Arnold the Terminator. So it is from 1984. The Terminator is your number 14. That's not a horror movie. I, I know. know. Right? Self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> I learned I learned how to do that at Pet Seminary. Um, <laughs> so yeah, number so, number 14, James Cameron's The Terminator. Um yeah. You good? Number 14, The Terminator? Yeah. He'll be back, I'm it, sure. It point. is a um, horror movie. I'm going to make you watch this now and you'll see why it is a horror movie. I've seen it. Whatever. I just seen it. You know, it's a horror movie. Not, I mean, years ago, but (laughs) I just, you know, if you're like name the top 50 horror movies of 19 of the 1980s, not at all would pop into my head. Terminator. Well, if you're our listeners, they're going to put it at number 14. That's what they're going to do. Clearly. Number 13, however, um, is that wonderful little ode to the Christmas spirit, that of Joe Dante's gremlins dun, dun, Reed, dun. we had a hell of a time discussing gremlins in december so 2016 16 oh that was two years gosh. ago yes that one i go back and listen to the gremlins episode that's a really fun episode oh it's so great yes listeners you should uh, go and check out our gremlins episode we have a lot of fun it was early in the days of the fear of god so that it's a little bit more raw and and i think is kind of better for it but um yeah it's the gremlins is a is a really great film and yeah listeners voted it at number 13 um number 12 if you wonder why we why we're breezing through these so fast it's just you know most of these we've kind of spent some time talking about so we're just kind of breezing through them but number third uh, number 12 is the other james cameron horror film from the 80s and that would be Aliens, the sequel to Alien. And uh, yeah, there's a large debate about whether or not Alien or Aliens is the better film. I'm in the camp that I prefer the original Alien, but Aliens is certainly a fantastic movie. And listeners agree because they voted on it as number 12 of their favorite horror films of the 80s. What they also read, vote on as number 11 as their top favorite 50 horror films of the 1980s. That's a mouthful. Um, (laughs) Is... Uh, Predator, directed by John McTiernan. And if yes, you want... Yes, did. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Our old friend. Number 11, uh, why didn't I make the top 10? Two of wow, my films I... are in the top 20 and none in the top oh, oh. Arnold, I don't know, Arnold. <laughs> Go back and listen to our Predator conversation. You'll get all the Rosemary's baby you can shake a stick at. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. So all right. All Number right, 11 ladies. is Predator by John McTiernan. Woo! All right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> next week, we are going to be counting down for you your top 10. Wait, we are going to be revealing. Top 10 next week? Top 10 is next week. We're going to show you where some of the films that we've been teasing out along the way, uh, we will reveal what your ultimate favorite film, uh, horror film of the 1980s thus, is. Thus far, we've done The Evil Dead. 
Yes. An American Werewolf in London. Yes. Friday the 13th. Friday th- right? Yes. And so wow. this week, we're going to be talking about another one that is in your top 10. We won't say where right now, but it's in your top 10. And that is the launch of the Freddy Krueger monster franchise, the original, directed by Wes Craven, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, is he a monster or is he just misunderstood? You know what? Uh-oh. Freddy Krueger may be the one guy... He's- that he's we have some trouble. He's a monster. Um, yeah, he's, yeah, he, yeah. he's pretty awful. Can, <laughs> there's, there's no get. There's no getting around that one. Um, yeah. But uh, so so Nathan, I know we, we've talked about it before. How back in our college days we watched that trio of films: Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth, A Nightmare on Elm Street. I want us to 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 take just a small iota here and talk about. You know, we've covered Halloween. We covered Halloween like as episode ten. We have now covered Friday the 13th, and we're about to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street. Where do these films kind of, like, in your assessment of them, generally speaking, where do these things sort of fit in your uh, in your affection, in your interest, in, in your general objective, you know, rankings of them? How do you feel about the, you know, the films pitted up against each other? You mean Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare? Yes. Um, well, I feel like you've you've set me up to tip my hand on my, you know, where this episode's going. So maybe it'll be a really short episode. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, I would say of those three in terms of affection, appreciation, um, I, I think I would rank them in number one spot would be Halloween, which feels the most direct, the most precise of them even from a filmmaking standpoint. And then the second or uh, to borrow a phrase from our previous series in at number two (laughs) would be um, uh, Friday the 13th. I think I actually don't love the buildup of Friday the 13th a ton. I mean, some of the deaths are pretty gruesome and, and you know, arguably inventive. I think what sets Friday, I think what sets Friday the 13th apart is just the subversion of who the actual killer is, what their motives are and the sort of, kind of impact that has not just in the film, but on the sort of genre itself. So I would put that in second place, you know, with nightmare on Elm street, not too far behind it. I don't right now based solely on Freddy versus Jason and uh, nightmare on Elm street. I I'm not a big fan of Freddy, the character. Um, I think, I think that some of the trappings of the dream, or, or some of, some of the expressions production wise of some of the dream stuff uh, is very effective, but the character of Freddie so far in these two films don't, doesn't really do a ton for me. I can understand. Um, sure. Would you, how would you, would you feel similarly in terms of that ranking? What, what would you say? You know, based on these original installments, I do think, I do think based on these original installments, I'm going to line up with yours. I, you know, the, the, it's interesting because they're, Across the franchises, um, there are installments in Nightmare on Elm Street that I really have a lot of affection for. Like, I love Dream Warriors. So Dream Warriors is is really, and I know you haven't seen that one, but like Dream Warriors is, is 
I I enjoy Dream Warriors almost more than I enjoy any of the Friday the Thirteenth at all. Um, but in terms of these original installments, yes, it's it's Halloween right up top with without much contest. And then um, I I do love Friday the Thirteenth, especially I watched Friday the Thirteenth and A Nightmare on Elm Street in pretty rapid succession uh, in refreshing for our episodes. And I definitely think Friday the Thirteenth is kind of a stronger film, even if I would acknowledge that I think A Nightmare on Elm Street is probably the stronger concept um it's just a more ambitious concept I, yeah i can i can get with you on that and so uh so yeah i think i would i think i would rank them uh similarly a little bit of a uh, a little bit of trivia on nightmare on elm street the franchise so new line cinema which is now you know a titan of several powerhouse films um they were a struggling company that was actually established like in the 60s um as just a distribution company um but they had struggled for n- nearly you know, a decade and a half, and they took a chance and produced A Nightmare on Elm Street after a long string of financial sort of disparity. They took a chance on Nightmare on Elm Street, and it was one of their huge runaway successes. Um, it was so wildly popular, in fact, that um, it is New Line Cinema, by many people to this day, is nicknamed the house that Freddie built because it oh, provided right. them, yeah, because it provided them the financial capital to be able to become the production studio that they that they are to this day. But um, but yeah, so A Nightmare on Elm Street was a huge success for them, and it was a gamble. Wes Craven had a lot of difficulty getting this made because a lot of people thought the concept of somebody coming after you in your dreams would not be scary. A lot of people just thought like, oh, well, you, I don't know that 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 uh, opening pitch you made of my absence. Oh, that was pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, sincerely, they and it actually in hindsight, it strikes me as odd that people think, yeah, your your nightmares becoming real, that that wouldn't be a scary concept. But a lot of people rejected Wes Craven's original screenplay idea. And so anyway, the rest is history. New Line Cinema took a chance on it. Um one th- one sort of brief trivial bit that I'll mention. Did you catch who the teacher was at Nancy's school? Did you happen to recognize her? Oh, I absolutely did. Nice. Fellow Hero God co-host. That would be I'm one so Lynn Shay, she of the Insidious franchise. Indeed, indeed. Yes. Um, and and probably and probably other things. I don't want to shortchange her <laughs> career. Sure. But that's what I knew her from. Sure, exactly. Exactly. Um well, that's uh, I mean, uh, there's more that could be said about sort of the franchise as a whole. I won't spend a ton of time on this, but just, you know, th- this original installment, Wes Craven my, well, real quick, if I can throw at sure. you a, a slight trivia bit, my only real like para film reference to Nightmare on Elm Street, I've also referenced on previous episodes, and I'm going to on air in front of God and our listeners uh, entreat you to use it as our outro music, uh, that of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince's A Nightmare on My Street. So, yeah, <laughs> let's let's. Please put that on as the outro wow. music. What? You know, well, you killed uh, my so. I, you you single handedly killed my idea of using the iconic actual music. But I'll see what I can work. <laughs> you can sort of dovetail into it. The you're, I just you're adore when you do have that. Have fun with that. <laughs> I know. I know. Like I just kind of call you out. Hey, can I tell uh, a funny story? Great. Sure. Go ahead. This is like a. This is you know. Um, was it last week? 
Sometime recently on the show, we referenced Gardner Webb, our college days. We do that a lot. You you just did in terms of when we watch these movies. Well, um, if you're not piecing together the timeline at home and it matters to you on your uh, fear of God reading Nathan friendship corkboard, um, you know the flannel graph <laughs> set of which is going to be for sale on the fear of God website soon. Um, That'd be amazing. Actually, we need to figure out how to make that happen. Um, <laughs> um, so Reed and I, if you're following along at home and timeline after college, spent a brief span of time together in uh, Southern California. Yeah. And there's a scene in this movie where uh, whom I refer to as Jack Sparrow, um, that of Johnny, <laughs> Johnny Depp um, is, I think he's laying in bed or he's laying on a couch or something while Tina and Rod, enjoy each other's company uh yes off screen yes um so these two characters are are having sex off screen um <laughs> it's 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 really like <laughs> Reed just figured story. out where i'm going with this story. story um and uh, so it's really like dumb it's it's like it's so you know like it's like a 15 year old wrote the screenplay. This is what sex sounds like. Um, and then had, you know, cast Johnny Depp as the person to be on the receiving end of the noises. Oh so it's a really funny scene that happens in the movie. Well, Reed and I move out to California and <laughs> we find this apartment. We, we stayed in San Diego briefly with some family members of his and would drive back and forth from San Diego to LA uh, for probably about a week or so, maybe slightly longer, looking for a place, looking for work, that sort of thing. Well, yeah. um, Reed finds both. I find one, which, you know, that landed me back south. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so we find this apartment and it's this one bedroom apartment in 2000, the year 2002 for $1,500, which was a hell of a lot of money for a one bedroom apartment. And who knows how much that costs now? Um, oh, Lord. Well, I, we never even met these people, but we slept on mattresses on the floor in the one bedroom apartment and read to this day. I have this. It's like, like if I were a filmmaker shooting the scene, I would do, I would put the camera on its side on a bed and just have the lens open up and look across the room at you. Oh and meet gosh. eyes because it was a sat it was a Saturday morning, which is hysterical. I don't remember anything. Audience members know this. Nathan's <laughs> memory is terrible, but I remember the oh first time I heard neighbors loudly having sex next door. So <laughs> Saturday oh sa- Saturday morning, you know, we are like fresh meat in L.A. Like yeah. you know, hoping to make some sort of go at some sort of who knows what the hell kind of life and. <laughs> We're living in this apartment. We don't know what we're doing. We're, are we adults? Are we children? We don't know. It's, you know, it's like Britney Spears saying, not a girl, not yet a woman. That was us in <laughs> LA in 2002. And we're on mattresses on the floor. And I just wake up on a Saturday morning to the sounds of sexy time. Oh my gosh. On the other side of this apartment wall. Oh and I, I remember just opening my eyes. And looking across at you and thinking like, oh, my God, <laughs> where are we and what have we done? You know? Yeah. And oh and that God. was it. just watching Johnny Depp listen to the sounds of just just beauty next door <laughs> just took, took, took me back, took me, took me back. Took you right know, it's hysterical. Then. And the punchline to this story 
and you might remember this. Um, we would, as, as normal, you know, 21 year old dudes would stay up late playing video games. And this is around the time of maybe the first Halo, maybe the second, I can't remember. We would stay up late playing video games. Right. And these, these people <laughs> who had woken us up on a Saturday morning, we never met them. We didn't know their name. Come knocking on our door at like yes, 11 yes. o'clock at night. Yes. Yes, indeed. Being like, yes. ah, excuse me, you are playing your video games too loud. <laughs> and I wanted to be like, excuse me, you are doing what you do too loud. I'm just trying to sleep on a Saturday. You're just trying to sleep on a Monday. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. It's, Y'all it's have your so fun. Awkward. We'll have ours. You know? <laughs> Anyway, so <laughs> there's that story. I can't believe you told that there story. That is so is that story. Yes, funny. you can. <laughs> um, so oh yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street. Johnny Depp listens to these two folks enjoying each other's company next door. So wow. that is that's another that's another another canonical tale from the history of Reed and Nathan. <laughs> Talking about a nightmare on Saturday morning. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> Pivoting back into the film, I do want to uh, mention. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. Um, so, just a couple of brief things about the franchise, kind of as a whole. Um, I mean, I, I, the Wes Craven um, frequently derided like where they took the Freddy character because they really made him much more of a jokester, prankster kind of character and uh, sort of a witty wisecracker. And that's not really what. Craven had in mind for his for his vision of him. Um, he wanted him to be very uh, malicious and very just consciously very scary and intimidating and predatory. Um, not that he's not that in the future installments. Uh, one kind of interesting trivial bit, and some of this is apocryphal, but still probably worth mentioning. Um, so Johnny Depp, this is the debut. It's credited as introducing Johnny Depp. Like this is his feature film debut. Supposedly when he went to audition for this, he went with his buddy at the time, Jackie Earl Haley, who wow. sometimes the sometimes the apocryphal story says that they, you know, that Jackie Earl Haley was also auditioning. Uh, he says he doesn't remember auditioning. He was just kind of remembers being there. Um, but yes, then, of course, Jackie Earl Haley would don the actual Freddy Krueger mask for the much maligned and I think mostly rightfully so uh, 2010 remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. But yeah, so. Craven did not like where they took the Freddy character for the most part, and that's why when he stepped back in to direct New Nightmare, he wanted to do something completely and utterly different. Which is why, if but other seen, but other than Jackie Earl Haley, he he is the only one who ever plays the character, right? Robert England is the only one who, yeah, who ever played uh, Freddy Krueger, yeah, right, and right, Robert and really, sorry. yeah, and really embodied um, the character, like owned it, and and Robert England, you know, Wes Craven, the director and creator of the character, didn't like where it went, but Robert England seemed to really embrace it, seemed to really sort of relish his capacity to to put on that persona um, and loved, you know, loved doing that at conventions and everything. He eventually retired the character. They said, will you ever do it again? Um, and again, I'm going to call out that the Goldbergs uh, for Halloween, he's going to be donning the mask once again. But the reason he said that he doesn't do it really anymore is because he said there's no way he'd be able to do the stunts that would be required for playing the role at this stage. I mean, he's in his 70s now, so there, there's no way he would be able to do the physicality that he was able to do as a younger man. But yeah, so Wes Craven, when he stepped back in for New Nightmare, wanted to do 
something just dramatically different, which if you've seen New Nightmare is why it's actually not really Freddy that is that is after them. It is a, a, a demonic entity that is adopting the persona of Freddy because Wes Craven really wanted to go back to sort of the original roots of uh, of the franchise. Um, pivoting into sort of general likes, dislikes, I have a couple here and then I'll, I'll bounce over to you. I'm going to start with a couple of dislikes because there's a lot that I, that I like and, and even would say love about this film. Um, but I'm going to start with a couple of dislikes. First of all, um, I don't think that the performances in the film as a whole, I don't think that the performances are terribly strong, even from Robert England, who I do like a lot in the film, but I, I think the performances in general are a bit weak, and uh, particularly from Heather Langenkamp, I think she's got a great spirit and tone to her. I don't, I don't quite know exactly. She's got a quality to her that I really think works well for the role. But I don't think her performance as Nancy is particularly strong. I don't know if that's because of her direction from Craven or her skill set or what it is. Um, because I definitely like her as Nancy, but uh, just individual moments that I don't particularly care for for most of the performances in this film. The other thing that I'll ding it as a dislike is some, not all, but some of the what I'll call Freddy trickery in this original film just hasn't quite aged well. Um, I'm thinking specifically, no. of, yeah, specifically the scene where he's like extending his arms out and it looks like, yeah. a, like a dilapidated slinky, even removing his face, uh, which is a, a decent makeup effect, but looks a little hokey, um, slicing his own fingers off and stuff like that. Some of that trickery just hasn't just hasn't quite aged well. It is unsettling still, but it's not uh, it's not totally effective. Anymore for me. <laughs> uh the the slinky arms almost has this Monty Python kind of effect. Like <laughs> if you're Nancy in that moment, you're like, I don't get it. Like, are you? Is that supposed to be scary? You know, <laughs> it's just this really weird kind of bit that happens. Oh my god! Um, you know, if Nancy adopted a faux British male accent, <laughs> um, and we let's give some credit here. You know, the Duffer Brothers. I highly suspect Bard the name of their leading lady from a nightmare on Elm street. So proving once more their originality and creativity. Um, Oh, that's some, that's some (laughs) shade right there. That's some shade, bro. We don't need to get into that. I really do have, I know I really do have high hopes. I have hopes for stranger things three. Um, (laughs) uh, Have you paid attention to like David Harbour's social media engagement? Uh, you know, no, it, it not all what I'm referencing. No, no, not really. So, um, David Harbour, like, I don't actually think he might be off Twitter now, but before he was, there are several instances of him, like, like fans would tweet at him and he'd uh-huh. basically be like, Hey, they, they'd ask him a question and he'd basically say like, Hey, if you get this retweeted X amount of times, I'll do the thing you're asking. So twice now he has responded to fan engagement. Once he went to prom with a fan. Oh, wow. Prom with him. And Dang. the other one, I presume he's certified to do this. If not, he was at least, uh, you know, faux doing this. He officiated a wedding. Oh, my so god! Like David Harbour. Yeah. It was like someone said, hey, will you be the officiant at my wedding? And he was like, well, I'll get certified or whatever if you'll get this retweeted like 25,000 times or something or whatever. Oh, and my god! The person, the person does it and he honors the 
You know, that's, he's like, well, this is what I said I would do. Um, that's great. I love stories like but that. It's fantastic. But enough about Hellboy. Let's jump back to Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, <laughs> I'm not gonna let I'm not gonna let you derail me, Lackey. Um, okay. In okay. terms of like, in terms of likes, dislikes, <laughs> I love the line Nancy has once. Once we're kind of in the throes of the whole story and Nancy's actively working to not go to sleep, she's in the bedroom with Johnny Depp and she holds up a mirror and she says, oh, God, I look 20 years old. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, man, to look 20 again. I know. I know. Well, it's just like, how old are we supposed to think she is that she's like that? 20 is a long distance from her age, <laughs> much less that 20 is actually any on any level an old age. Right. Um, exactly. Um, I really like I, I referenced a general sort of meh about Freddy, the character, which you hear me like that has more to do with, you know, kind of his monstrous sort of sadistic. Um, I reference on Freddy versus Jason, his kind of just general licentious nature. I do think the character design is super strong. I mean, it's a really clearly just an an indelible kind of creature design. That said, in this first film, two things I do like a lot. One is, I don't think I've referenced this explicitly. If I did here, I'll repeat myself. It's just all of the stuff that that happens in the dream worlds that they're engaged in. I I think specifically of things like uh, early in the film, right before Tina gets taken is the, the sort of ceiling effect encroaching. Oh upon Nancy. my gosh. Yes. That's yes. a really strong visual. Uh, later in the film, Nancy trying to ascend to the stairs and gets stuck in the like marshmallow. Yeah. Right. 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 Of mm-hmm. her stairs. So, so the, the, the sort of trappings of, of what happens to them in the nightmare world or in the dream world, whatever is really strong. And I do really dig and this may have been insecurity about the look itself, may have been an attempt to build tension towards a fuller reveal. I do like the obscurity they put upon Freddy throughout the film visually. There's a lot of just kind of shade and, and sort of shadowed sure, yeah. effect around his the visual delivery of the character. Sure, sure. Well, and I have a, I have a pretty distinct memory of when I was... <laughs> Because I saw this film when I was eight years old. I would never in a million years recommend that somebody see this film at eight years old. <laughs> it is it is a hardcore horror film uh, in that regard. Uh, but uh, I have a distinct memory of the opening sort of uh, salvo where he's building the glove and sharpening the knives and the yeah. music and the tone. And um, and yeah, so so that's that's a pretty indelible impression in my mind of how Freddy, you know, emerges in the moment. And I definitely think there's a lot of strength to what they do with him. There's some fantastic, just singular visual shots of Freddy sort of moving around a corner or off in a distance or images of the close-up of the glove and and stuff like that. I, th- I think there's a lot uh, to really like about that. I actually genuinely love the overall tone of the film and the music. I think the musical score is absolutely fantastic. I think it's creepy. It's haunting. Uh, that little refrain of one, two, Freddy's coming for yeah, you. Yeah. That's really effective. Very, very creepy. Um, I will say just sort of a, a, a last little one, two punch of uh, likes, dislikes. <laughs> I did write down when this happened. I said, 
screw your pass. The screw your pass line from Nancy's nightmare is probably the dumbest moment ever. Like it's just it's just so dumb. This is like you need a pass. She's like screw your screw pass. Screw your pass. It's, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's it's pretty dumb. Um and given what's what had come before in the film, the climactic uh I know this film hadn't been made yet, but the almost home alone type ending with Nancy versus Freddy, um it doesn't <laughs> it, it it doesn't really sort of punch as hard for me as it's probably trying to. Some of that's probably just the, the Especially when Nancy's like you got to the count of 10 to get your no good dirty keister off of my property. <laughs> yes, yes. I never understood that moment until Home Alone came out. Um, so, uh, but then, like, you know, even stuff like the mother's skeleton figure, like, slipping into this bed and they're just watching this thing. Like, some of, some of those moments don't quite work for me as well because I can't quite tell what is supposed to be dreamlike and what's supposed to be uh, in the real. But I will say... And we'll get to this again in themes. I will say that I genuinely love the moment right before the ending where she looks at him and says, I take back every bit of energy I ever gave you. Um, I mean, mm. Again, we'll come back to that in theme, but I just I really love, you know, as much as I would sort of ding her final stand against Kruger, I really do love that moment where just the phrasing of that line, I take back every bit of energy I ever gave you is, is really a strong, strong moment. And I like that quite a bit. Well, you referenced the mom a second ago. The mother is the worst. Like, and, <laughs> yes, well, indeed. I say that that mother is maybe the worst, but that daddy may be even worse for oh letting Nancy gosh. live with that mama who is the worst. Like, <laughs> he seems to have his head yes, on straight. Yes. Why on earth would you let your child live with that woman? Um, <laughs> I did also note, I don't know if you caught this very subtle touch. Her dad is a cop and she has a police poster in her room oh no um, i don't think i did notice that um i also love that this is like you know this priest who who eulogizes i don't remember whose it is funeral but he's like if you live by the sword you will die by the sword i was like that's the most unpastoral eulogy <laughs> ever right like, wow i know that's- i know well, and but that's the thing really is depressing. well, and yes, it makes no sense why he would be saying this out of eulogy. It makes perfect sense given the theme of the film. Again, we'll get to that later, but yes, it, it makes absolutely no sense why he would be saying this at the eulogy for a teenager. But but yeah, that's uh that's kind of all I had for likes dislikes. If you want to, we can um, we can pivot into some scares. I've got three or four pretty big ones. Do you want to do you want to open this one up? Sure. Um, I I will lead with what I think might be the strongest well i'm gonna give this movie some credit there's some pretty indelible scares in terms of the imagery i think tina's death is like insanely intense and haunting oh gosh Um, yeah i mean that's for this way in which and again if you think about it as i've watched nightmare on elm street the first entry 20 years ago at this point 15 18 years ago and most recently watched freddy versus jason which really amplifies the camp factor when in this first movie rewatching it it takes that turn with the way her death is is exhibited yeah 
it really uh it really raises the stakes i was like oh my goodness sure it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty devastating oh no i totally agree and and i wrote down uh two things specifically what you already mentioned the the sort of spiral up the ceiling and it's terribly terribly haunting all done practically which is immensely impressive but also i'm really i'm i've really got chills uh with again a lot of this is going to come back up in themes but I get chills uh, when she's saying she sees Freddy in the distance and she just utters that very brief, please, God. And he flashes up the gloves and says the glove and says, this is God. And it's like, oh, man, that's that's just deeply unsettling. (laughs) This is very, very traumatic. So there's a couple of things that are kind of silly. Again, the extended hands and stuff like that. But there's some really terrifying moments in Tina's uh, fatal nightmare. One thing that I mentioned is I do love, you've already referenced one of these, uh, I love some of the illusions uh, that Freddy creates. The Like you mentioned, the hovering through the wall or like sort of cr- stretching the wall to hover over her bed. But then also I really love the shot of the glove like where Nancy's in the bath and the shot of the glove just like... Oh, that's up. fantastic. That is an iconic image and it is really, really effective. That is a... I mean, the fact... And what's so creepy about it, it's like, you know... Yeah, just the visual aesthetic for a for a being to be able to reach his hand up through something that is clearly holding water. It's a really unsettling effect in general. And yes. Uh, so, yes, so I, I, I love that quite a bit. That would probably have been my sort of second other or their second major one. Um, I do think little things like I think it's Tina, maybe in Nancy's dream has a centipede come out of her mouth. Yes. So gross. And we don't talk in 2018. We don't talk on our phones as much, you know, to make this an effective deterrent from phone usage. But I think if we did that, if your phone had a function where it would lick you back when you talked on it, it would be a really... It'd be a really great deterrent to minimize how much you're on the phone. Yeah. That is one of the most disgusting images ever. Indeed. Indeed. Nasty phone Ugh. licking her face right back. Uh, well, I, I know it's, I know it's, I'm sorry. You go, no, you're fine. You there. I know it's, I know it's a seminal scene, but Glenn's death is pretty jacked up. Oh my gosh. That's, yeah. That's, oh, that was the very, that was literally the very next thing I was going to mention is because that phone thing happens like she's, he, he says to her, I'm your boyfriend now because he's about to kill Glenn. And do you remember like, or did you notice like he's, he, Freddie is sadistic, man. He, he torments these kids um, when she's in the nightmare at the end and she stumbles across Glenn's bloody headphones. Like that's just, that's traumatic yeah um but but yeah glenn's death scene is now speaking purely practically at the wonder of movie making magic it is phenomenal like the effect is unreal um but uh but yeah that is an iconic death scene and i think you know i mentioned last week on friday the 13th that my favorite death scene in that film was kevin bacon's glenn's death scene in this one is clearly like that's that's sort of the the ultimate achievement of you know again cinematic wonder and cinematic uh, illusion um if you're if you're good i know the episode's sort of brisking right along but if you're good uh, i have something i want to kind of dive into a little bit with themes if you're if that would be okay please all right Reed. so um, so i will i will say this and this at this it was something that I have thought about a while um and watching a nightmare on elm street again uh very much affirmed this feeling 
possibly solidified it entirely. Um, I had felt for a long time that Wes Craven was one of the most morally conscious filmmakers that the horror genre had ever produced. Now, that obviously doesn't mean what I mean by that is not that his films make very neat and tidy moral statements, but they are all nearly all of them are wrestling with rather complicated moral issues. And I think about this film and I think about all the times that the crucifix shows up um, lines that like I referenced earlier, where Freddie is haunting, taunting Tina with this, like this is God. And one of the things that really stands out to me, if you happen to never have seen this film and don't know anything about the Freddie mythology. So Fred Krueger was uh, in the, in this installment, he is someone who is referred to as having killed a large number of children Later, the mythology sort of makes him out to be a a more fleshed out pedophile, as it were, in his in his mythology. Um, But he has killed a number of children and then he evaded consequence for those crimes by technicalities. And because he escaped on some technicalities, these parents of these children took vengeance into their own hands and they cornered him in this in this building and set the building on fire and what i find very compelling genuinely very compelling and this is what i meant when i said earlier about like i think halloween is is the way better film uh, i think even friday the 13th as a film is is probably a little stronger than nightmare on elm street but i think the strongest of the concepts my vote might go to nightmare on elm street because when they destroyed Fred Krueger by by fire they gave him power and I think Wes Craven in this story was very interested in the consequence for fighting evil by evil means what he would deem to be I don't know if he would use the word evil but uh, by trying to sort of right the ship and enact justice by doing something that was unjust. Right. And he's exploring this idea of like, well, actually by doing this thing, you gave Kruger all of his power. Like you gave him the ability to come after them in ways where you can't protect them and where you can't shield them. You gave him the capacity to be able to uh, haunt them in the supernatural as opposed to just in the natural realm. And I just find it to be very interesting. We, you and I talk a lot about the difficulties of navigating social issues, political conversations, navigating current conundrums. I didn't mean to be alliterative there, but um, current you know dilemmas and complications in our world. And you and I talk a lot off mic, and we've talked a fair amount on the show about how... Y- you can't get anywhere by doing by pursuing what you think is right in a wrong way. You're not going to be able to achieve a good goal by wicked means. If you, if you want to put it that way, if we can agree that the goal we're after is good, but there's a conversation about, well, the only way we're going to achieve that good is by compromising and doing these things that on the surface may seem bad, but ultimately they're they're for the the greater good, if you want to use that very reductive language. I think this film is, in a way, an indictment of that idea. Um, and I think Craven himself, who, who uh, had a religious upbringing, 
And uh, I don't I don't know exactly where um, his, his he ultimately landed in his posture of faith, but it's clear to me through his work that, as I you said, know, I'm pretty sure he went to Wheaton. He did. Wheaton he went College. to Wheaton College. Yeah. He, yeah. No, he absolutely yeah, yeah. did. And uh, he, as I mentioned before, he his films are very grounded in moral dilemmas and moral questions. And I feel like. That's something that I, it's it feels to me, particularly watching Nightmare on Elm Street, that he was very attuned to this idea that you only give evil more power by trying to squash it with evil, like by trying to fight fire with fire, to use the old colloquialism. You're only going to make the fire stronger. You're not going to actually uh, diffuse the situation, which is what you are hoping for. Does any of that resonate where I'm when I'm talking about this? film? Yeah. That's that's actually interesting to hear you say that, and I think maybe we alluded to this at least somewhat on Friday the Thirteenth. It it is just fascinating to see kind of the ground zero for some of these, you know, just seminal horror icons and franchises. But I don't know. I think I think I think what you're scratching at is valid. I'm I'm actually not refuting it at all. I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. Of sure. I think I think what you're illustrating might be more valid to me, although you could make a case other than this, would be more valid to me if it felt like Freddy's mission posthumously as this new version of himself mm-hmm. were to take vengeance on those who perpetrated this thing against him. Sure. Yeah, Instead, yeah, yeah. what it feels like, because the movie doesn't establish that, like it, it happens to be that the parents of these kids did this thing but he never cites that as any sort of motive so what you're left with i think i feel like in interpreting the film is he's just now perpetuating what he was already doing just in a more kind of grotesque and sort of imaginative fashion if you will as opposed to seeking vengeance for having done this thing, having been done to him. Well, and I don't even know that, which again, go ahead. ahead. Well, and I don't even know that I would think that vengeance is really, in other words, I don't know that I would, that I myself would say, and I don't know that Craven would say were he's still around to, to speak to this. I don't know that we would say that vengeance is really part of the point. He's just, it's this thing where he is an, if you want to use this language, an evil being, a predatory being. And then by doing something, you know, sort of vigilante violence against him, you merely make his predatory skills, if you will, stronger. Because now you right. now you've sent him from the natural world into the supernatural world, and to the degree that it's like, yeah, no, I, I don't know that necessarily he's after vengeance. I think he's after what he's always been after. Just now, he has been given the power by being taken out in this way. Uh, he's been given the power to do this in a much more insidious and and more difficult to stop method. Um, not def- not refuting what you're saying, but but yeah, I, I don't know that necessarily no, vengeance yeah, plays yeah. into it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of processing and, and cause you know, of course that clicked with me, this notion of the collective sin of the parents, mm-hmm. I guess what strikes me though, is kind of like in a very practical sense. And I think this is just what happens when idealists like myself, and perhaps you'd throw yourself in this boat too, but like on a very practical level, it's like, okay, well, what then? You know, like sure, if, if right, you, right, right. 
not arguing that it's valid that they murdered him in such a distinct and cold fashion or hot fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then what, you know, right. Right. And by no means am I advocating, well, he's just going to keep killing people. So you got to kill him. But the movie, the movie kind of doesn't, I don't think you're wrong that at its heart, it may be trying to examine a version of this idea. Sure. I just don't know. I don't know which is received this as critique of the film and not of your interpretation. I don't know. The film's quite smart enough to know what to do with that. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I hear um, you and it definitely doesn't make it a, a, an on the nose. Well, I was going to say it doesn't make it an on the nose point, but I do think there's something in that moment where Nancy says, I take back every bit of power I ever gave you. Um, yes, but yeah, but but it doesn't work, right? I mean, at least the way this film ends, because I'm with you. I think that's a really powerful sure, scene. Sure. That if it went somewhere productive for that character, would be validating of your point, right? No, I um, see what you're saying. But the film ends rather bleakly, right? With um, him once again in power, as it were. Right. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know. And I guess maybe and maybe that's my slight dissonance with the film as I'm like, I don't know what you're after here um, other than a really cool concept, which it which it certifiably is. I did I something that did ring out to me building on but slightly pivoting towards a different type of theme here is just the notion of like mass psychology. Oh you know, yes, like yes, you know when when I mean the 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 notion of it manifesting in dream state is a bit metaphorical, but what do we do when we observe negative aspects of humanity amplified by a mass? Right, you know? right, right, right. <laughs> no, I, again, all, all that to say, I think there's some interesting seeds in the film. That I don't know if the film is quite architectured to to deal with. Yeah, and I, I I would I would concede that because I would also say that like while I think Wes Craven's filmography is really good at wrestling with some of these dilemmas, I don't think his conclusions are very easy to ascertain. I don't think it's it's easy to really know exactly how he where he lands on uh you know in a, in a kind of a bumper sticker like I'm kind of trying to put on it. Um and I yeah. agree, and I agree with you that the the to, ending is, real quick I'm sorry to inter- you're, you're, I'm sorry to interrupt you but like the, does the Jackie Earl Haley edition to your memory um the the impression I got from the trailer and that's all I've seen of that film was at the least it illustrates the the corporeal torture and murder of Freddy Krueger by the parents. Does the film's content primarily deal with that trajectory or it does itself move into the nightmare scenario stuff too? Um it's if I understand your question, it's 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 basically a retread of this original material so it doesn't it doesn't dive too too more deeply the one thing that it that the new version does the remake version does is for a moment and it is only for a few moments it toys with the notion that maybe fred krueger was falsely accused and that maybe that's why he's seeking vengeance but then the film 
pivots mm-hmm. away from that and it says no he really did do this and he's really just a monster and so so yeah it's it's very much in many ways kind of a kind of a beat for beat for of of this of this film which is part of what i think people maligned is they were like why like this the, this feels gotcha. so yeah so like an unnecessary retread unnecessary yeah. right well, and I guess I guess the reason I even bring that up or ask that is trying to figure out if it if it more strictly establishes some moralistic some moralistic boundaries to it. No. In a no. way that the first film opens the door to but doesn't quite kind of doesn't even really try to close the door on. Well, and something that and 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 maybe this is just for kicks in the few minutes we've got here but like I, 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 you come from a Pentecostal background where this sort of line of, of thinking has a bit more foothold, something that I know that's a really random insertion there, but where (laughs) I'm going with this is the validity, the validity of dreams, the, the, the potency, the, the, uh, spiritual nature of dreams. You know, I, I think that sort of rang out to me a little bit too of like, how seriously or not, how much or not to pay attention to our dream state, you know, how much that is true reflection of subconscious kind of anxiety or not, right, right. you know, I know, th- I know that's kind of just, just throwing a bunch of stuff on the table there, but that really rang out to me too. Cause it's a whole, it's a whole narrative, ultimately long tail umbrella built on this, as you've said, this really strong narrative mechanic of what does or doesn't happen in your dreams and how it affects you in the real. Right. Right. Know? And I think there's something worth exploring there. Uh, I'm, I feel remiss of, of mental faculties to really know exactly how to unpack the ramifications there. But I definitely think there is a way in which our subconscious and our psychological unconscious manifests itself in our behaviors and in that way can manifest itself in the world around us. I mean, obviously I don't believe, yeah, you dream a thing and you can bring it back out with you, but I think there's something to that. I mean, sometimes I think you, you focus on a thing in your, if we want to call them dream state, uh, in your sort of subconscious and unconscious mind, uh, you focus on a thing you are going to, to a degree manifest either that thing itself or a similar uh, a similar feeling like if you if you dwell on um evil that's i think i think that's part of why the scriptures compel us to think on whatever is good and pure and right and lovely is because if you dwell on these other things and if if that's where you're sort of uh the substance of your unconscious thoughts resides i i think eventually there's no way you can avoid those things manifesting themselves in the real. I think that doesn't mean it's a beat for beat uh, that your dreams have that degree of power over you. But I think if they linger long enough, you're, you're going to have bleed over ramifications. That's simply that's simply going to happen. And particularly using kind of combining the two analogies, particularly if you are trying to or you are framed around doing the wrong thing for what you've convinced yourselves yourself are the right reasons, then naturally you're going to continue to manifest even more of what is toxic and even more of what is poisonous and even more of what is damaging and detrimental in the world around you and in your own spirit. 
you're going to continue to manifest those things the more you feed that beast, as it were. Um, does that make does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. And I guess I I think it's a great touch the way the movie ends. Like she's now trapped in this kind of dream world. Um, the convertible design is really strong. The blow up doll mother through the window is <laughs> ridiculous. Oh my gosh! Yes. yes. But uh, but I, I guess I just wish for the narrative or for the the sort of thematic framework that her exertion of her will over him and that re- that scene you keep referencing you know of i retake my energy or whatever it yes. was like that's that's a really strong scene and and you know you know pretending that it has the effect she's after like i think has application for us for for how much we do dwell on those things that are negative in our subconscious that spring up sure like, and and, I, and i'm not trying to make light of or ignore things like you know, uh, diagnosable depression and, and sort of, you know, mental struggles, things like that. But, you know, when, when these, these thoughts that plague us do occur, the, how much we dwell in them can kind of just feed them. Right. And I said, so I'm with, I'm with you that I think that's a really strong sequence when she kind of asserts her agency in the face of him and in the face of how much energy she's been giving over, uh, to that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think I'm going to bring in the scripture verse very briefly, and then we can uh, wind it down with some David S. Pumpkins, because um, it is late and we is tired. Um, Romans chapter 12 and verse 21, I have referenced this passage of scripture before, um, and I think it's it's always prescient for us to focus on. Um, it says very simply, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, I would categorically revoke the fight fire with fire idea and say, no, how we diffuse and upend evil items, evil intentions, evil things, whether they be in our in our dreams or in the world around us is uh, is by fostering what we've called on this show before palpable goodness in the world around us. And um, and I think, yeah, you can be there. Man, uh, maybe we'll revisit this at another time because I feel like there's there's a whole side conversation that could be had about, you know, how how you handle, you know, becoming a victim or or, you know, the trauma that's entered into your life when something is, you know, we've talked about that on the show before. But, you know, the things that Freddy Krueger does to these people and they feel wronged and they take, you know, actions into their own hands. And um, and that only, again, exacerbates things. But. But I think uh, I think we can leave it there for for the moment. Um, if you're if you're good with that, and go ahead and bring in our old our old friend Kruger S. Pumpkins. <laughs> Whoa, no! Will. Um, so uh, as we do on every film we talk about, we measure in a very specific metric of style, scares, and substance, issuing forth a rating of David S. Pumpkins um, uh, for style. On Nightmare on Elm Street, this one's a little tough because I think, again, the concept is strong. There's some things that don't hold up terribly well. So I'm going to land on a three and a half for style. Yeah, I I will echo a bit and throw a three out there for style. I do think I do think it's got some strengths to it. Um, It just feels very down the middle for me in terms of some of these things. But yeah, I, I, I think it's clearly worth a visit. Um, but a three is where I'm going to land on terms of style. As far as scares go, though, I mean, 
you know, whether it's, um, you know, Glenn's death, whether it's Tina's death, mm. I think the, the bathtub hand immersion, not immersion, right? Right. right. Yeah, yeah that's, right. that's right. That's right. Um, alone in terms of just the way it's shot, the, icon- the iconic imagery associated with that, those are pretty darn freaky. So I, I think I'm going to give it a four in terms of scares. Uh, I'm going to sit right there with you. I was going to give this a four for scares. I think it's got some individual moments that while are some moments are quite cheesy and don't age well, there are others that are still just as impactful and effective as they were, as they must have been uh, to audiences in 1984. Now, for substance, this one's difficult because I agree with you that at times the movie feels a bit confused, but I feel like it's scratching at something pretty profound. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna split some difference here and go three and a half on the substance measure because I do think there's some, there's some interesting stuff there. Um, but I think that the film doesn't provide you very many neat and tidy answers to those things. Yeah, and I think I will probably just to be. Uh... Uh, kind here i'll go with a three i do think what you're talking about lurks on the fringes and it's sort of in the periphery of the text of the film it just doesn't quite materialize beyond that for me personally so yeah i'm gonna land on a three (laughs) um surprising no one uh we maybe we need to adjust the david s pumpkin somehow um but no i I'm, re- I'm I don't think we need to do that because, you know, but surprising no one, we give Nightmare on Elm Street our absolute favorite rating around here, that of a seven out of ten. David S. Pumpkins. <laughs> on that note, are there any questions? Read. I love the eighties number four. Hashtag I we love have, the eighties. We oh gosh. We have one left next week. Um, so I'm going to go, do you care if I go ahead and tell them? Yeah, no, no, by all means, go ahead. So next week we are covering, um, that landmark ghost story that as a child scared the bejesus out of me. I don't know why on earth my parents thought it was okay for me to have seen this movie. It's like my version of your (laughs) pick a movie. You watched it seven or eight or whatever. Uh, uh, that being the. Toby Hooper directed Steven Spielberg manufactured um, pol- Poltergeist. We are discussing Poltergeist next week. Yes. Um, feature- featuring none other than Pixar's Mr. Incredible himself, Craig T. Nelson, uh, amongst uh, <laughs> another uh, or uh, other great cast members. So we are discussing that next week. Um, just to remind you, if you are trying to journey along the road with us to Boulder and ultimately to Las Vegas. Two weeks from today, we will be releasing Quarterly King number four, which is The Stand. I have it on good authority that it's a really strong episode. Um, So we will see you here in two weeks for that. Uh, uh, You know, breeze through your audio book. Uh, stay up late at night thumbing through those pages. Um, you know, watch the six hour miniseries or just Wikipedia, the darn thing. <laughs> but we are doing the stand in two weeks. Next week is our ultimate entry in I Love the 80s, that of Poltergeist. Reed, Nathan. thank you, buddy, for being here, for being you, for just. <laughs> 
thank you for being a friend. You've traveled down the road and back again. That's that's true. Know? That is true. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much, Nathan Rouse. Uh, it's a little bit on the late side for us. Thank you for staying with me. And listeners, thank you as well for sticking with us. We'll see you well, next week. I, you know, I recognize and I appreciate your deference to the lateness of the hour. But, you know, we're, I'm not going to sleep because I don't want <laughs> No. Ready to come get me. Never so. sleep again. Never check sleep in, again. check in on me tomorrow. <laughs> in the meantime, guys, I hope you don't sleep as well, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com for show notes, or to leave a comment on this post, or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. That began the nightmare, but on my street.